Dr. Margaret Kripke is Professor of Immunology and Vivian Smith Chair Emerita at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Kripke is also one of two panelists, along with Dr. LaSalle LaFall of Howard University College of Medicine, on the President's Cancer Panel, which recently produced a new report, Cancer and the Environment. Dr. Kripke spoke recently with Jean Rizzo, President of the Breast Cancer Fund, Susan Braun, Executive Director of Commonweal, and Michael Lerner, President of Commonweal. Margaret Kripke, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you. Uh, I'm sitting here with Jean Rizzo, the President of the Breast Cancer Fund, and Susan Braun, Executive Director of Commonweal. And Margaret, you are Vivian L. Smith Chair and Professor Emerita at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And you were one of two panelists with LaSalle LaFall on the 2008-2009 annual report of the President's Cancer Panel called Reducing Environmental Cancer Risk, What We Can Do Now. Jean Rizzo, Susan Braun, and I and you uh, have all been involved in, in cancer work for a long time. And uh, for those of us having this conversation with you, uh, your report was one of the most important public documents about cancer and the environment ever produced in the United States. So we're very eager to explore with you how you came to do it, what you concluded, and what your reflections are. So let's just start with how you came to be on the President's Cancer Panel. Well, the President's Cancer Panel are, is a group of three people who are appointed by the United States President. And their responsibility is to survey the landscape in cancer research, cancer treatment, and try to point out to the White House what gaps there are, what things could be done to accelerate the agenda of reducing cancer. Um, I was appointed actually in 2003 by George W. Bush, and so I've served on the panel since then. Um, I suppose I was nominated by various people to serve in the role of a scientist, basic scientist, on the panel. Typically, the panel has an advocate, a cancer advocate, um, a scientist, and a clinical person. And how did the President Cancer Panel decide to focus on cancer and the environment? Well, it's an interesting process. The, um, every year, we, f we focus on a different topic every year. And so each year, both the panel members and the staff uh, suggest topics, and we discuss them, and the staff work up a little white paper about you know, what uh, would be involved. And then we have a lot of discussions about, are we happy with this? What would we like? You know, what, what things would be appropriate and current for, um, for the panel to look at? And I have to tell you that this series was extremely controversial. And there were a lot of both pros and cons about doing a series of this kind. I, and I have to freely admit that I was not very enthusiastic about doing it at the outset. And part of the reasons for that are that environmental carcinogenesis is a topic where there's a lot of controversy, there's a lot of uncertainty, and so you have to think, what is going to be the public message that comes out of that? And what conclusions could we draw when there's really, uh, there are so many things where there's just not enough information. So that was one issue. 
The second issue was that this is a very emotional issue for a lot of people. And um, many people are concerned about why did I get my cancer? And they are convinced that their cancer was caused by something in the environment. And so we were, I was concerned that we would be diverted from an objective analysis to an emotional, uh, an emotional issue. And the third one was that there is a stated figure about how many cancers are caused by environmental agents, and that figure is 6%. And it wasn't clear to me that the President's Cancer Panel should be focusing on an issue that only affected perhaps 6% of cancers. And so I was not wildly enthusiastic about this as a topic at the outset. So I'm very interested in what happened to your perspective in the course of the hearings you held around the country on different aspects of this, all the scientists that you brought together to listen to. Um, what happened to your perspective over the course of that? Well, one of the reasons that I, I agreed that we should do this is um, other people pointed out that 6% is still 20,000 deaths a year, 40,000 people with cancer and 20,000 deaths a year. And those people deserve a voice too. So that was one, one persuasive argument. Um, a second persuasive argument is that this is a subject of huge public interest at the moment. And the third persuasive argument is that cancer research has not focused on this area. I, I've been a cancer researcher for my entire professional career. I go to all the cancer meetings. And hardly ever do you hear anything about environmental carcinogenesis. It's just not part of the mainstream of cancer research. And so I was convinced, yes, we should go ahead. We didn't seem to have any other compelling issues on our agenda. We should go ahead and do this. Well, this was an enormously eye-opening experience for me. I, after one meeting, uh, the first meeting that we did, which was on cancer in the workplace, um, I became a crusader for looking at this issue because it was so different than anything that I had expected. And how so? Well, I always assumed that if you have something in the workplace that's regulated, that the regulations would be enforced. And this turns out not to be the case in all cases. So that we have regulations, carcinogens in the, in the workplace that are regulated, and um, the, the regulations may be very unevenly enforced. Um, I always assumed that if something was a known human carcinogen, that it would be regulated. And this is clearly not the case also. There are carcinogens in our environment that have been banned in Europe, banned in Canada, that we are still using and that remain unregulated to this day. And I always assumed that before things were put on the market that they would be tested. And that too is absolutely not the case. We test very few things for cancer-causing properties. The United States has not regulated much of anything since the 1990s. And so we have really have not had much activity in, in that arena. And the third point is that that it's estimated that there are somewhere around 80,000 chemicals, man-made chemicals that are put in, that are currently in our environment, um, most of which have been put there since the end of World War II. And only 
2%, around 2% or less of those have actually been tested for cancer-causing properties. Now, some of them obviously are not candidates for cancer-causing properties, but others are. And we seem to espouse the principle of the reactionary principle, which is that until something is demonstrated to be harmful, we don't worry about it. Whereas some, in other places in the world, people say if we think it's going to be a problem and there's uncertainty, we take a precautionary approach to, the, to putting things into the environment. So you went from being a skeptic about doing this to, in your words, a crusader about this. <laughs> that must have been an extraordinary personal transition for someone who's been one of the leading cancer researchers in the country. Well, it was an eye-opening experience for me. Listening to the testimony of government regulators, government funding agencies, um, scientists from all walks of life, and hearing their stories about what is going on in this arena was really very powerful. And, you know, I like to think of myself as a scientist of being very open-minded and being willing to listen to various points of view. And I must say I was really overwhelmed by this issue. Overwhelmed in the sense that there was more good science than you expected? No, overwhelmed in the sense that I was so naive in terms of my belief that we were being protected from things in our environment. Uh-huh. And, and did you find in the course of the hearings that, that there was more science than you expected on this or, or not? Well, this is not an area where I have personal expertise, so I learned a lot of things about science that was going on. But I think the overwhelming sense is that there needs to be much more science. And um, when we started looking at things like agricultural exposures to pesticides and fertilizers and so on, it was very clear that we have very little information about the public health impacts of those things. And so I was left with a sense that we have very little knowledge about what really is going on in our environment, and we need much more information. Mm -hmm. Jean Rizzo, you have thought about breast cancer and the environment for a long time as president of the Breast Cancer Fund. You were actively involved with the process of the President's Cancer Panel. When it came out, what was your response to it? When that report came out, it was as if everything that you had been working for and those before us had been, whose shoulders we stand on, were, I don't want to say on the one hand validated, it was validating. And on the other hand, it was in a form that would communicate so much more broadly than we all could possibly hope to accomplish. So it was, it was this effort that we had over many years to take, to look upstream for the causes of, of cancer, of breast cancer, and to move the mainstream. And there was the mainstream standing square in it with this report. And I thought, this report will be a legacy piece. People will refer back to it 5, 10, 20 years from now and say, that's when it changed. And that's what I expect from this report. Susan Braun, you've, again, spent much of your professional life in the cancer field. When you first saw and read the report, what was your response? Um, It's interesting to me, too, to hear Margaret talk about this because... 
I too spent a good bit of my career looking at you know biomedical research in cancer, looking at public policy around screening and treatment, both very important, and learned in the last five years or so quite a bit more about what we do and don't know about cancer and the environment. And I too had the sort of response, the more I've learned, that there is a great deal there that simply doesn't seem to be in the path of vision of part of the, the group of people working in cancer. It certainly wasn't in my line of vision. And so seeing this report, um, as Jeannie said, it's validating. It also has a very concise and readable way of explaining where those gaps are and, and pointing out to us um, what to look at, what we do and don't know, and also some action steps that people can take so that it doesn't become um, an area where people feel hopelessness about, about what can be done. Um, another thing too, and Margaret mentioned that there have been estimates about the number of cancers or the percentage of cancers that might be related to cancer in the environment. And the report very clearly shows that those estimates have been flawed. They, they aren't well um, grounded in, um, in fact, and that we really don't know much about what the public health impact is. And so I think the way the report elucidates that as well and opens up that space to say this might be bigger than we know, um, it might be extraordinarily important for public health, and I know many of us believe that it is, and gives us an opportunity to explore that more deeply. So I, I think it's just, uh, I think it has a phenomenal impact and potential for impact moving forward. I think this is something that will live on for a long time. Yes, we, we tried to get an estimate of the number of hits on this report. Gina, I think you got the estimate, somebody did in our group, but uh, there've been a huge number of hits on the internet on, on this report. So that, it's attracted attention all around the world. And I suppose I want to ask you, as you moved from being a skeptic to a crusader just based on what you were learning, did you have any sense of how this report would be received when it came out? And were you surprised by the response? I had no sense of how this would be received and I was absolutely surprised by the response. First of all, the President's Cancer Panel reports are, are typically used by policy groups and some research groups to, to help make their case for their own agenda and so on. Um, sometimes they're used in policy making decisions, but typically they don't create a huge you know, response. This one has been overwhelming. And again, I was uh, in my naivety, really had not anticipated that that would be the case. So this has been both a little scary and very gratifying in terms of the response that, that we have gotten. And of course, we've had responses on both sides of the, both sides mm -hmm. of the fence, of course. I think it's been um, uh, the links through our site to it um, have rivaled our own uh, state of the evidence, so it, it's really? right up there with that. I mean, people come, they look at that, they go, mm -hmm. they, and they link mm -hmm. through and download the report. And I think we've we've run out. We're, we've uh, 
they don't have more printed copies, but we've been ordering 100 or 200 at the time. People wow. just, I mean, I think we've distributed, I don't know, six or 700 copies yeah. ourselves. And people want it. And, you know, people don't usually pick a report no, that size right, up right. for the heck of it. They right. really want it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. it's yeah. extraordinary. So you said you were both, it was both surprising and somewhat scary to get this kind of response. Uh, and there were responses on both sides. Absolutely so. And, um, and I would say in some ways legitimate responses on both sides. People concerned that this might divert attention from the important issues like smoking uh, and obesity. Right. Uh, and obviously, people who thought this was important to bring some attention to this. Um, so you found it both gratifying but also a little overwhelming or frightening. What was the, what was the gratifying part? What was the frightening or difficult part? Well, the gratifying part, part is just that there are so many people who are interested in the report. Mm -hmm. And people who are interested in environmental issues have been very supportive and very responsive to the report, which is very gratifying. Um, on the other hand, there have been a lot of critics for the report. And one of the major criticisms is just what you said, that, that this report focuses, focuses very specifically on environmental causes of cancer and does not include lifestyle factors such as tobacco, nutrition, exercise, and so on. In defense of the panel, I should say that our report two years previously had been on lifestyle factors and, the, and their role in cancer causation, where we spent half of the report looking at tobacco and half of the report looking at nutrition, exercise, uh, obesity, and those factors in cancer. And one of the criticisms that we received from that report is, you didn't include anything about the environment. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we, we thought, okay, well, we'll look at the environment on this one, and because we had just done a report on the other factors. And also, the previous the, uh, year before this one came out, we did a report on what are the three most important things you could do to reduce the burden of cancer today. And number one is, of course, getting rid of tobacco. So we, had, we felt like we had, had uh, looked at that issue fairly comprehensively. And, uh, and I don't think that this detracts from other issues. I think people understand multi-causality of diseases. And so I don't think that saying there are things in your environment that might be dangerous keeps people from thinking, well, tobacco is bad for you also. Right, right. Jean Rizzo, as you read the report and you've thought about it carefully, were there particular areas of interest or questions that came up for you that you'd like to explore? In reading the report, I was impressed by the call-out of um, hazards related to um, medical health care and also to military. I thought that that was um, often not, the, those two areas are not addressed. They're, they're a little bit, they're sacred cows in some ways and they get weaved into the, to the rest of the issues. So I, um, in particular, we're, you know, the 50 plus uh, Marines or more from Camp Lejeune exposed to, um, to, to, a contamination in the water. I just wondered if you could address both 
the medical radiation, medical care part of it in the military, since I think those two really were uniquely uh, addressed in the report. Well, the radiation issue, medical uh, sources of radiation issue, was actually brought to us by radiologists. And the radiologists have a movement at the moment to educate providers of particularly CAT scans, CT scans, because they produce very, very high levels of radiation exposure, many, many more times higher than an X-ray, for example. And the, they showed data about the increase in the use of CT scans over the last 10 years, and it's just astronomical. And it's used very often for children who fall on the playground, hit their heads, they're given repeated CAT scans. And um, so they, they actually brought this question up of, of wanting to regulate the CT scanning industry. They pointed out that not every CT scanner emits the same amount of radiation, so you can have a hugely different dose of radiation depending on where you go. And there's not a lot of um, control over the training of technicians who, who um, administer CT scans. So they actually brought this to our attention and they are very actively engaged in trying to uh, control, limit the number of CT scans, not get rid of them because they're incredibly valuable as a right. medical tool. So are x-rays and, and so are dental x-rays, so is mammography and so on. Um, but the excessive use of those things is what they're concerned about and I think that's what came out in the report. I remember hearing the testimony on that yeah, and it was amazing. frightening. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in fact, it seemed to me one of, one of the areas where we could do the most good and reduce harm, where there's just a, a real opportunity for a shift in practice, is right there. So right. many of these things are vast, difficult right. problems, and that's one where we could really make a difference. Yes, and I think the American Radiology Society is, in fact, doing exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. And what about the, the, the military toxics? As Jean Rizzo mentioned, we just interviewed a Marine and a Marine, uh, a son of a Marine, who were among the 60-some Marines from Camp Lejeune known to have male breast cancer. Uh, it's a, you know, just an extraordinary concentration, and we don't even begin to know what the total number of male breast cancers are. But it appears to be related to water contamination at, at Camp Lejeune. Uh, and it's a very interesting science issue as to what the linkages are there, which are now being explored. But it raises the whole question that, that Gene is raising about military toxics and both the impact and your important and strong language about that in the report, uh, where you said... Uh, uh, that there should be, if I remember, an aggressive effort to reduce military toxics. What about that area of interest? Well, uh, one of the issues from the military is that of all of the designated Superfund sites in the United States, which are heavily contaminated with toxic materials, mm -hmm. which are seeping into the groundwater and get into the, you know, get out of what they're contained in and get into the environment, mm -hmm. a number of those are actually from military bases. And so and nearly 900 of the Superfund sites. Thank you. I didn't want to misquote, yeah. so yes. Right. And so it seemed to us that the military has not moved aggressively to do anything to clean up these sites, and they've been very reticent to 
to investigate or to publicize uh, the effects of these substances in the environment. Um, it's very similar to the case that we've had over the last few years with uh, what are called the downwinders. These are people who live in Arizona and downwind of the atomic test sites. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole group of people who are now experiencing cancer and whatever from the tests in the 1950s. And they've had a very hard time um, getting any kind of remuneration or assistance from the uh, military or th from the federal government from being innocently impacted by these tests. The same is true in the Marshall Islands for the Marshall Islanders who, who were really recipients of heavy doses of radiation from, from nuclear testing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I know the military is one of the sacred cows, but it's just seemed logical that, that this is a place where we could potentially make an impact if someone would say, you know, we have a problem here. We have a problem. <laughs> yeah. One of the most powerful aspects of this report really appears on the first page, which is the letter that you and LaSalle wrote to uh, President Obama. And I'd just like to quote a little of it so that listeners can get a sense of it. You say, Dear Mr. President, though overall cancer incidence and mortality have continued to decline in recent years, the disease continues to devastate the lives of far too many Americans. In 2009 alone, approximately 1.5 million American men, women, and children were diagnosed with cancer and 562,000 died. With the growing body of evidence linking environmental exposures to cancer, the public is becoming increasingly aware of the unacceptable burden of cancer resulting from environmental and occupational exposures that could have been prevented through appropriate national action. And you then go on to say, the panel was particularly concerned to find that the true burden of environmentally induced cancers has been grossly underestimated. With nearly 80,000 chemicals on the market in the United States, many of which are used by millions of Americans in their daily lives and are un- or understudied and largely unregulated, exposure to potential environmental carcinogens is widespread. Uh, and, and at the end, uh, you say, uh, all levels of government, from federal to local, must work to protect every American from needless disease through rigorous regulation of environmental pollutants. Environmental exposures that increase the national cancer burden do not represent a new front in the ongoing war on cancer. However, the grievous harm from this group of carcinogens has not been addressed adequately by the National Cancer Plan. The American people, even before they are born, are bombarded continually with myriad combinations of these dangerous exposures. The panel urges you most strongly to use the power of your office to remove the carcinogens and other toxins from our food, water, and air that needlessly increase health care costs, cripple our nation's productivity, and devastate American lives. These are strong words from two highly respected, distinguished cancer scientists. You must have thought long and hard before you wrote that letter. Well, having thought longer and harder since the letter came out, um, I might not have made it quite as bombastic as it is. But in point of fact, that is a letter that was designed to attract some attention to the report. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, um, very often the reports sit there and no one pays too much attention. And we thought, we really need something that will capture 
the attention not only of the White House but of the American public. And so it's as a scientist who whose whole career is based on objective evidence before you make a conclusion, this is a little far out for me mm -hmm. even. But I, I believe that what we've said is true and will be shown to be true in the future. Mm. Um, we did take a lot of criticism in saying that the figure of 6% of cancers may be due to environmental uh, contaminants, that that number is grossly underestimated. And people said, well, you have no evidence for that. Um, I think we will have evidence for that. Um, uh, I think evidence is growing that that's the case. And even the authors of the study that concluded that there was 6%, you know, this represented 6% of cancers, first of all, that was 30 years ago. And um, secondly, even they said that this is a, a true, really an underestimate. We've only included a few things in this calculation, and this is an, under, is an underestimate. So I think we will be uh, proven correct on, that, on those grounds. Susan Braun, as you read the report, what came to the surface for you as the key points or questions that would be most interesting to explore with Margaret? Um, there, there were so many. I mean, I think it was nicely balanced in all of the point areas that are brought up. But one that's particularly interesting as well is the disproportionate effect on children and on underserved populations and how um, the number of children's cancers, for example, although mortality is down, incidence is up. Yes. And we're talking about these are not things that could necessarily be lifestyle factors, for example, when we're dealing with young children. And then different but, but strongly weighted in the same way is the disproportionate effect that we have on certain populations that are, you mentioned downwinders earlier, where people live, the kind of work that they do. And I, I think that's another very important area because it, um, it brings us into a place, I think, where people can put faces more clearly and names more clearly into the, um, the real devastation that the letter talks about. Any reflections on Susan's comments? No, I, I think that that's one of the points that struck us as well is the, in fact, that was one of our major conclusions from the report um, is that children are at special risk mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. They're developing, they're small, smaller than adults yeah. and so on. But they are cer certainly at greater risk and the evidence is accumulating that there's an increase in cancer in children for no apparent mm -hmm. explainable reason and also an increase in the number of birth defects in children. Mm -hmm. And so and I think that's an extremely important uh, canary in the mine, if you will. And also the, the point about the impact on underserved populations is only going to contribute to what we already know are huge disparities in cancer incidence and in cancer outcomes in underserved populations and populations in lower socioeconomic groups. So those, I think, are the really important targets of the report. We need to do more in those areas. Let me ask you a, a question that really perplexes those of us who've worked on the cancer prevention side for some time, and particularly those of us who followed the issues of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, which mm -hmm. you 
address, which at, at low levels can either directly or indirectly potentially contribute to cancer directly, perhaps as carcinogens indirectly, perhaps as obesogens, which contribute to obesity, which in turn is a significant cancer risk for major cancers. Um, so the question for you as a scientist is, is how do we need to think about our paradigms of cancer research when we are living in a real world in which endocrine-disrupting chemicals in combination with electromagnetic fields, radiation exposures, poor nutrition, stress, income disparities, a host of things, suggest that even as a, in a set of diseases as complex as cancer, that different people may develop, for example, an identical breast cancer through different different combinations of sources. Um, and so if that's the case, not only with cancer, but birth defects, learning disabilities, infertility, asthma, you know, uh, a range of the epidemic or near-epidemic conditions of our time, how do we study this as scientists? In other words, how do we ever know if it's not 6%, if, if the evidence will show that it's more, how will we ever know what the contribution of environmental contaminants to cancer incidence is? Well, I think at the, we, we need new methodologies with which to do that. I am not an epidemiologist, so I'm not exactly the right person to answer that question. But I think we need research on what methods do we need, what new methodologies do we need to study those complex interactions that lead to um, cancer. Uh, the second thing, second answer is that at the moment, we have model systems in which we can tease apart individual contributors to the process. And that's, in fact, what's being done at the moment. I think that's uh, a lot of the evidence that endocrine disruptors contribute to cancer came from animal studies and showing that, that they can cause cancer in animals. And so there are a variety of approaches uh, in existence to, to look at the cancer-causing properties of certain chemicals. But putting it all together and trying to assess an individual's risk of developing cancer, when you're talking about a lifetime of exposures and changing exposures is really very challenging. And as I say, we need some good science in epidemiology on how to do that. Had you thought about the issue of endocrine disruptors before, much before you joined the panel on this? Had that been an oh, area, yes. oh, yes. been that, an area you've yes. thought a lot about? I, it's not an area that I've worked in, but I've certainly heard it discussed in many contexts okay. previously, yes. Mm -hmm. Because in, in the world of science discourse that we work in, that's been a quite central issue. <coughs> and its implications, for example, for protecting Americans from cancer risk are, are really startling if these very low-dose exposures in utero can have lifelong effects, um, it poses tremendous challenges to all our regulatory regime. I think that's right. And um, you only have to look at the changes in maturation of young children mm -hmm. and 
sexual maturity coming much earlier than it did 50 years ago and so on, to, to want to ask the question, what is behind this? And certainly this is not a changing gene pool. It's too rapidly, uh, uh, too rapid an onset to be something that, that has been evolving from genetic alterations. So the other logical conclusion is that it is something in the environment driving this uh, pattern. But the pattern is unmistakable. It's, right. it's uh, very clear. And I think that gave some impetus to the, the endocrine, endocrine disruptor hypothesis um, in terms of real biological effects. Jean mm -hmm. Rizzo. In the very beginning, we talked about, and you, you talked about, the precautionary versus the reactionary. And so if we, if we have a model that in order for science to affect policy, public health policy, you have to know exactly with absolute certainty and proof. If we hold to that model, and on the other hand, we know it's very, we have a very complex issue here. If we hold to the model of waiting to understand exactly, we wouldn't act. And I think what you drew out in the report is that we have enough to act that there is, that we can act on the knowledge that we have and we can remove those things that are known or suspected of causing harm. That may be how we prove the point. As you remove those things from system, as you regulate them and take them out and you begin to see, we saw that with hormone replacement therapy, or at least we, we think we've seen some of it, where you remove something and you see, you see a change. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that because you did weave it through the report that idea of taking action with the knowledge that we have, recognizing that it's a, a complex issue? Well, I think there are a number of things that are suspected or known human carcinogens that are in the workplace and in the environment that should be acted upon right away. And those are things that, that are, you know, those are the low-hanging fruit, really. Um, and, but it doesn't seem that there's an enormous amount of interest in the part, on the part of regulators to do this. And so that is clearly the place to start, where there are known things. Let me give you an example. Um, Canada has banned pesticides for use in landscaping, personal housing and landscaping. And so people have used other methods for pest control on their flower beds and vegetable gardens and, and so on. Um, without much adverse effect. But that is a, a decision that was made at the national level that hopefully will actually reduce cancer-causing agents uh, over the future. So I think there are some things like that that we could do here that would be, um, that we just have to have the will to do. Mm -hmm. Looking at your recommendations, the very first one as you mentioned, is a precautionary, prevention-oriented approach should replace current reactionary approaches to environmental contaminants in which human harm must be proven before action is taken to reduce or eliminate exposure. How did you conclude that that's where your recommendations should start, since that's such a major policy issue in America today? Well, it's the thing that would probably have the most impact in the future, on future generations, to quit putting things out there that are untested and then having to bring them back. 
um, it was described to us as looking at the end of the pipeline. You have a process, a manufacturing process that produces a chemical or something that goes into the environment. And it comes out of the end of the pipeline and is distributed. And then to put it back in is very difficult. And so the remediation of things that are already out in the environment is much more costly and much more difficult than having engineered the manufacturing process from the very beginning to not create toxic byproducts and to not create toxic products at the end. And there are classes of chemicals that we know have potentially have those properties. Pesticides are, of course, one of the better examples of that. And so in those cases where there is a high potential for risk, we ought to be thinking about that at the beginning, not at the end after it's already on people's carpets and on their lawns. And your second recommendation, again, um, bold in, in, Ameri in current policy environment, a thorough new assessment of workplace chemical and other exposures is needed to quantify current health risks. Previous estimates of occupational cancer risk are outdated and should no longer be used by government or industry. Um, workplace chemical regulation in America has uh, not been a subject of, of great attention for no, some that's time. that's correct. That's so this, correct. again, is, a, a, is a, really a marker. Well, I don't think there's been a serious workplace assessment for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's not even clear that, that appropriate records are being kept so that we could track uh, health effects uh, in various industries. But there, there has been a study recently in Scotland where they have concluded that 8% of cancers in Scotland are due to occupational and industry exposures. That's in males and 1.5% in females. And they've limited that just to looking at industrial exposures, and they limited it to six different cancer sites, the six, six main cancer sites. And so it didn't include anybody in the general population or any of those things. So it's clearly an underestimate. But it is possible. I mean, it shows us that it is possible to do those kinds of assessments and that other countries are moving ahead in that mm -hmm. arena. We need to be there, too. Mm -hmm. Jean, additional questions or comments? I wanted to get back, if you would, to some of the research recommendations and, and how it is that we conduct research. One of the things I was um, struck by was your call for uh, banking biospecimens, which is something, and high-throughput screening. Those are, those are things that we've been talking about in this field for a while because, you, you know, testing one chemical at a time, I think, I think it'll take, I don't know, we estimated how many... Centuries, centuries to get right. to get to the first ten percent, <laughs> right. and uh, and and the failure of investment in that kind of research and the foresight to include things like biospecimen banking. So I just wonder if you could approach some of that. Uh, talk to us a little bit what you learned and what you'd want to communicate about that. Well, we did hear some testimony that there are some new high throughput screening methods that would enable testing of large numbers of compounds rather than the one one test, one chemical at a time with a four-year animal study and so on, which is totally impractical. We will never catch up with the backlog, nor can we keep up with the number of new chemicals that are being put out every year. So 
Unfortunately, there is not a lot of support for research of that kind. That's the other part of the testimony that we heard, is that it's extremely difficult to get funding agencies to fund that kind of research. So I think it's extremely important that we change the focus of research in the cancer field and take some of the focus away from treating advanced disease and put some of the focus on the upstream part of the equation because that's where all of the life-saving is. The money-saving and the life-saving is when you prevent cancer or you detect it early, not at the end of the, the end of life uh, diseases. And given that somehow that's such an obvious conclusion, <laughs> um, why is it, do you think, that it's so difficult for... Um, a national cancer research agenda largely funded by taxpayers to move in that direction. I'm always just curious about it's not as if anybody's suggesting abandoning research on you know, uh, advanced cancers but somehow it's been so difficult in America particularly to move even a small portion of the resources into primary cancer prevention, environmental cancer prevention? I don't have an answer for you to that question. I, mean, the, I think the answer is complex. One is it's easier to generate a lot of concern and a lot of support for curing cancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have talked for decades in this country about the war on cancer, the cure mm -hmm. for cancer. The, um, that has been the focus and people get are energized around that agenda, as they should be. Um, it's much more difficult to say, let's look at causation of cancer, because the immediate effects are not apparent. Mm -hmm. there, are not, you know, there isn't an immediate outcome as there is in a life-saving cancer therapy, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it has to be a philosophical shift in terms of what you want to support. And this is taxpayers' money, and taxpayers want to cure cancer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there is as much public pressure on preventing cancer or early detection of cancer as there is, as there is on curing cancer. Mm -hmm. But that's where it has to come from. It has to come from the American public. Mm -hmm. Susan, other questions and thoughts? Um, I think wrapping that into what you said earlier about the kinds of regulations and um, laws that there are in Canada, that there are in Europe, and that aren't in place here, and that speaks to the, the public will for looking at prevention, for taking a precautionary approach, and for looking upstream, that we we don't seem to have that same interest in this country, or at least the majority interest doesn't seem to be there yet. So, and I, I know the answer to why that might be is pretty complex. Um, but any thoughts from what you all have discovered here and, and found out about how that might change, whether it might change um, courses of action that are important? 
Well, it will only change if there's public pressure to do so. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of economic interests in the world that are uh, um, geared toward not having that happen. And anything that you say, particularly in today's economic times, um, you don't want to, to do anything to impair business and the growth of business. And all of these things are viewed as Im having a negative impact on business and productivity. And so that's what you're fighting against. Again, that's why I'm convinced that the only way to really change this is at the grassroots level. If people demand it, it will happen. That's how we got more money for cancer research. People demanded that we would spend more money on breast cancer, for example. And they demanded that more money be spent on prostate cancer. So the public has, has the ability to change the federal agenda. They haven't done it here yet. But I, I, you know, I'm hoping that this report will stimulate some action in that regard. I think the, uh, when you talk about the economic issues involved, there are those who believe that the best approach to the whole cancer prevention might be the investment in green chemistry. Yes. Because that would shift the economics of it. If, yes. people could, if we could create safer products and they could be profitable, then we could, we could move the system because there is such a, a, a big economic influence. I liked your approach in the report to not only talk about the value of green chemistry, but the necessity of ensuring that those alternatives truly are safer and are also scrutinized. And you, you spent time in the green chemistry piece. I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, it just seemed very logical to us that that's, that's what needed to be done. And um, I know that there are state initiatives out to try to put more emphasis on green chemistry and on, on manufacturing processes that would provide uh, safer products. There's always a danger when you do that that the substitute that you are ha you know, creating also has its own problems. We saw that with the, the reduction in chlorofluorocarbons, for example. We got rid of the chlorofluorocarbons. Some of the substitutes also had... Uh, health effects and problems, uh, environmental problems. So I think you do have to keep an eye toward, toward. We say we need more uh, safer alternatives to certain pesticides and chemicals and so on. Um, we need to keep an eye on whether those safer alternatives are truly safer. When I look at the section called "Reducing Environmental Cancer Risk: A Call to Action," and just the major headings under it. Uh, we need to determine the full extent of environmental influences on cancer. The nation needs a comprehensive, cohesive policy agenda regarding environmental contaminants and protection of human health, not just cancer. Children are at special risk. Continuing epidemiological and other environmental cancer research is needed. An environmental health paradigm for long latency disease is needed speaking of endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. Existing regulations for environmental contaminants need to be enforced and updated. Stronger regulation is needed. Radiation exposure from medical sources is underappreciated. Medical professionals need to consider occupational environmental factors. Workers and other populations need full disclosure. The military needs to aggressively address the exposures it's caused. Safer alternatives are needed. It's really, how can I say this? It's an extraordinarily visionary, comprehensive 
response to the set of hearings that you have. Presumably, neither you nor LaSalle, um, in terms of your background or academic um, uh, lines of work, had, uh, or perhaps I'm wrong, but perhaps that breadth of creating a, creating a, a agenda and a call to action of that breadth must have been a very challenging thing. It must have been challenging to look at the research that you heard about and then come to such a comprehensive and, to my mind, a deeply thoughtful set of conclusions. Was that a challenging aspect of the, the work? Well, yes, just because of the breadth of the topic, for one thing. And we, we spent probably as much time discussing the conclusions and recommendations as we did on anything else in the report because we wanted to make sure that we captured all of the, the crucial elements there, such as the people exposed to radiation from military sources and... You know, we wanted to make sure that it was comprehensive, and at the same time, if you have a laundry list of 50 things, it loses impact, it loses, loses emphasis. So trying to get the right balance there, I think, was challenging. I should also say that, that the President's Cancer Panel is blessed by having an exceptionally good staff. And these are um, researchers who follow up on the literature, they check all the facts. Uh, people presented white papers as part of their testimony. They checked all the references and made sure that they were quoted correctly and so on. So between having a very expert staff helping to put this together and also an extremely talented and experienced writer who actually puts the things into words, um, that is, is enormously helpful. And they contributed significantly to the report. It was not just... LaSalle and myself. Thank you for that. Jean Rizzo, any final thoughts or reflections or questions for Margaret? This report goes to the President of the United States, to the administration. Is it, you have a history of having reports and delivering them to the President. Is there an expectation of a direct response, an indirect response when the president gets this report, how do you have a sense that the administration has heard it? What are the opportunities for presenting or the response loop on that? Um, typically, we do not get a response from the White House. And the report is not delivered personally to the president. It goes through staff uh, assistance to the White House. And so we have not heard back from the White House. Um, we occasionally hear from some of the government agencies, but not, not often. And I must say, I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised that, that there has been no response from industry or from government agencies. And so I'm, I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. Susan? Um, as I look at this in all that it is and all that has gone into it, it strikes me as extraordinarily important, not only for people who are living with cancer right now, but for all people who are at risk for cancer, which is pretty much all of us. Right. And that 
what you've done here can help us not only encompass that extraordinarily important look at what do we do with individual people who have cancer today, but what can we do for individual people, even if that action is taken at a much larger than an individual level, who are at risk, the real lives that this can impact. And I think that that is, is clear in this, and I'm hopeful that, as you said, for people to come forward to say, this is something we must pay enormous attention to, that that human level of understanding and the ability to diminish suffering can be touched upon, can be understood, can be grasped, and potentially can be put into practice. Well, that is actually one of the reasons that there is a section, a separate section in the report that says things people can do. What can individuals do to reduce their personal risk of cancer? Because you can't put out a report like this and not give people some clues as to what they might do. Protect children. If you work in an uh, industry with chemicals, wash your clothes and take your shoes off before you come into the house. Pra little practical things that, that people can do, which I think are very important. And uh, I think at bottom, I, I heard, I participated in a, uh, an interview for public radio on which a questioner called in and he said, well, you know, I've never smoked in my life. I'm extremely healthy. I exercise. I run marathons. There is no one in my family who has ever had cancer, and I have cancer. What about me? And so people who say don't look at environmental causes of cancer because there are other things that are more important, what about these people? And I thought that's a very telling argument, and people do need to have their concerns addressed. And I hope the report does that. Thank you. Margaret Kripke, thank you so much for this conversation. Are there any final thoughts or reflections you'd like to offer, or do you feel that you've said what you have to I think I've said say? what I had to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're deeply grateful to you, and, and honored and grateful. I, I, I can't tell you how many people around the country and around the world who have devoted themselves to health promotion and disease prevention uh, will be forever grateful for your report. So we just thank you so much for all the effort that went into creating this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.